0: I didn't know after last week if our meeting hall sanctuary would be empty or full. Well, I'm happy for full. So let's just go right in. Today, today's sermon will be in many ways an application of the instruction from last week's uh, first part from chapter one of Ephesians, uh, and it's a favorite in many people's eyes, a recognition and an acknowledgment of God's grace and mercy on people's lives. Scripture shows us that God was eternally pleased by His counsel, which is secret to us, that God was eternally pleased to choose certain people to save in the work and in the life of Christ Jesus. All whom are saved, the Scripture says, were, were chosen. What a sweet knowledge and awareness that is. The Bible says that all those whom God has called, He will call salvifically in time by His Spirit's regenerating work to the point where He changes people's hearts from sinful desire to now faith in His forgiveness. This gift is not from us, but is from Him. By regeneration, or what's called change, the Spirit convinces us of our sin leads us to an understanding of Christ, stirs us to the point where we call out in repentance and faith. By regeneration and change, those who were once dead are now alive. And this conversion, or what's called rebirth, is by Him. And the best part, Scripture says that God promises us that He will keep us by His grace from falling away from this faith and by finally bringing us home to glory. In short, what is known as the initiating grace of God or the doctrine of election is the Bible's teaching, not man's, of a promotion of our humility, not our pride, of being given encouragement, not depression, being filled with confidence in evangelism, not paralyzed by fear, being given holiness to pursue righteousness, not license to sin, giving us assurance, not presumption by reminding us of God's glory, not our own. Oh, that election would make us call out like Paul, who says, for of him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever. Now today, I wanna present you and give you from the word four ways, four effects, or four reactions that you and I can practically have to the doctrine of election. This is why it's more of an application from last week's instruction. Four ways biblical election, I think, truly changes everything in our lives. Four reasons. So I want you to look at Ephesians, and we'll be in verses, uh, or chapter 1 of Ephesians, verses 11 through 12. The writer here, Paul, gives us an extensive praise to God for the blessings that Christians receive from their union with Christ Jesus. So he gives us an expressive praise of blessing. He basically lists them. There are four things that he's praising God for. Paul praises God for the blessings of first being chosen in verses 3 through 6. Second being redeemed in verses 7 through 10. Think, just think about those guys. The, the blessing that we have by being sought by God, by being redeemed by God, or third, by being an inheritor receiving an inheritance of Christ Jesus in verses eleven through twelve and then finally being being sealed in verses thirteen and fourteen. That is what Christians receive from God. Do you see that? Verses three through fourteen. And it, it is it is actually one long sentence in the Greek. So it's just one you can imagine just this tirade of joy that is coming out of Paul's lips where he can't stop talking about all that God has done. He has chosen us, redeemed us given us an inheritance, and sealed us. In 202 Greek words, in the verbs, for us, make an outline. Chose, redeem, gives, and seals. And this is what Paul praises God for, for God's work. God chooses, God redeems, God gives, God seals. Do you see that to the reaction at the end of many of Paul's books where he just praises God for all that he has done? Now I'm going to zoom in today on verses 11 through 12 where we see the benefits or the active reasons for us being redeemed, being chosen. And I think, frankly, that's awesome. Now, if you're with us new this morning, we're kind of going, I'm taking us through a series of six sermons. What I'm hoping to to do is allow these set of sermons to make a grid for us of how we can pursue God's Word. All of us approach the Bible through what I'm going to call a certain set of lenses. So a lot of people pursue the Scriptures and what it teaches through a set of lenses. I want our lenses to be what Scripture uh, expressively teaches. So the first one was that we should devote ourselves to what the Bible says. We use the text from the book of Acts where the first church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles taught what God gave them and who Christ was. Christ, in many ways, portrayed... uh, All of what the Old Testament would say about the coming Messiah as Him. And the prophets pointed us to the reality that we needed the Messiah. So we should devote ourselves to the teaching of the text. But then we also have to realize that we come to the text recognizing that we are in great need. We need a Messiah to save us. So we come not, not with a possibility of doing right and wrong, but with the understanding that we need absolute sovereign intervention in our lives because we are depraved. And then last week, I started a two-part sermon series, basically within a sermon series. Sorry if that's confusing to people. It's confusing to me. A two-part series on how God initiates His sovereign grace to us. Now, I think it's right to say that everyone agrees, all Christians agree, that, that election and predestination are in the Bible. They are words in black ink in your text. So they are there. And frankly, though there are two sides to understanding election and predestination, I think you'd be right, i would be weird if I didn't tell you what I think is right, I think you'd be right to see it as it is, that God not only initiates salvation with this people, but also carries it through by grace and mercy, not relying on us to execute sovereign grace, but relying on Him to seek us, save us, and bring us to glory. And I know that a lot of you are like, who cares? I'm saved. I don't care about theology. I don't wanna get caught up into an argument. I just wanna talk about the Lord's work and his grace. I'm saved. Isn't that good enough? Who cares? And I know that your heart is that you just want to love Jesus and forget about theology. And you even might think that sermons like this or conversations that I would imagine have happened over the last several days are bound to cause more trouble than they're worth. But I want to work today by aiming to convince you that a proper view of salvation is actually a proper view of God. If you don't really see who God is, then how can you properly worship Him? And a proper view of God is a proper view of life. And knowing what the Bible says about God him saving you the way He saves you, I think truly will revolutionize your relationship with Him in the most practical ways. So, the first way, I think that a biblical understanding of election seeks to kill our pride. A biblical understanding of election, I'm using the outline that's provided for you in one of the bulletins that you would have received at the door. I think first, when we understand what the Bible teaches about unconditional election, it, it seeks to kill our pride. In many ways, you could rename this doctrine, this theological approach, not as the doctrine of election, but a doctrine of humility. At its root, it's about God in Christ for the redemption of his people. At its root, we understand that it is not about us, which is hard, because if you're like me, I'm very good with making everything about me, but it's not about me. This is about the Lord. Now, there is this tremendous composition known as Handel's Messiah that was written and composed about 300 years ago, 1741. Handel's Messiah, you might hear it often during the Christmas time, though you could cherish it during the Easter time or during the summertime. It has three major movements. It's hours and hours long, and it has 53 different parts with choirs and solos and an orchestra. It is, it is unbelievable. It is complex. It is glorious. It is moving. And it was once played for the king of England, King George II. Its first time being announced or played or, or performed in England, it was done for King George II himself. And legend ha- has it. Now, hold on. I'm going to dispute this legend legend has it that king george ii was so moved by the hallelujah chorus and all of us have tried to sing it right we tried to go that high it was so moved by the hallelujah chorus that he instinctively stood and when the king stands everyone stands which is why people today during the hallelujah chorus of Handel's Messiah, everyone by custom stands but what if i told you friends That legend has it that the real reason King George II stood was, yes, because he was moved by the power of the music, but also him, the king, thought that it was about him. So he stood as they were announcing, hallelujah, to the king of kings. His majesty stood because he thought he was being recognized as majestic. Now, I don't know if that's true, but I did hear that on a tour, so I'm taking it as truth. Regardless, you can laugh, regardless, whether that is why he stood or why he didn't stand, you and I are prone to do this when we read the Bible, when we hear the gospel, when we talk about God, we make it, hallelujah, about ourselves, don't we? God saved me because I'm awesome. God chose me because I chose him. God brought me from death to life because I have potential. Potential. Amazingly, sarcastically, to think that we have potential that the creator of the universe never thought possible to execute without me being involved. I want you to look at Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11. In him it says, we have obtained an inheritance. Now this doctrine seeks to kill our pride. And there's an idea in this text that's being expressed here that is explained by the rest of verse 11. So there's this There's this idea, this first proposition of verse 11 that is being explained by the other propositions of verse 11. The word obtained, or you might have in your Bible, received in the Greek only appears this time in the New Testament, and it literally means assigned by lot or choice. So we have obtained, we have received, we have been assigned by lot or choice an inheritance, maybe like in the Old Testament. You see this played out in the Old Testament when the Israelites were assigned a portion of land. They receive something from God and are made to be something by God, for God. God is doing that action. He assigns them a place. He makes them a people. They are obtaining an inheritance. And the verb kleru is passive in this case. You can look at that word obtained and it's a passive verb, meaning you didn't reach for land that you were assigned You didn't reach for spiritual blessing that you were given. You didn't reach for God, but rather it was was given to you. Like a child at Christmas who was then granted a big box by his dad, and the child just lets it land on his chest. Now, Paul's point is this, that you, Christian, have been given something. You have received something. You have been gifted something, which practically you who were dead in your sins— having been made alive in Christ, have no reason, no reason to boast in yourself because it's been granted to you. But thanks to God, you have received this gift of adoption that is given to you in Christ. Now, no other truth will put us in our place quite like this one. A band of all stars, we are not. Maybe on the playground, you were begging to not be picked last. But friend, in Christ's church, You are not picked by Him based on your performance, your wealth, your popularity, your gifts. You were picked, chosen, plucked up by Him because of His desire, His love, it says in the Old and New Testament, for you. Knowing that God has chosen us, I think, reminds us that we are truly loved. It's not transactional. It's not that you put a really good step forward and God took a chance on you, and if you don't keep your end of the bargain, then God will suddenly deselect you. You know, like a, like a person be a benched in the middle of a basketball game because they just keep throwing up bricks. That's not how it happens. All you are good at is not good at basketball, yet God places you in his hands. And if at any point, isn't it great, if at any point that we attribute our salvation to anything that we have done, the Scripture is clear that we have lost the gospel. The gospel isn't about us, but about the glory of the Lord. The, ascertain, the ascertaining work of, of God and Christ towards us is not by our work, but by His. Look more at verse 11. It goes on to explain this. Your, your reception makes you an heir of grace. Now, this word translated inheritance is also passive in the Greek. You didn't do a single thing to obtain this inheritance. I dream, and it won't happen. I dream someday that I inherit a billion dollars. Wouldn't that be fun? Can you imagine getting a billion dollars? I'd buy a helicopter, and I would, I would buy a pilot to go with it. I mean, what? but I didn't do anything to get that billion dollars. I didn't create wealth in someone else. I wasn't born into that by anyone's any standard. It, was just, it would just be given to me. How, how wonderful would that be? And how silly would I be by receiving this helicopter and a pilot then go, you know what? I deserve that. I made that. I chose this. And in reality, something was given to me. Our reception makes us an heir of grace. You didn't do a single thing to obtain this inheritance. It's amazing. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is saying emphatically that you need to deal with the reality that you are blessed because of God's grace. (laughs) Be reminded of the same language from Deuteronomy chapter 4 where it says, But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace out of Egypt to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. It would be a mockery. Of God and his grace, and you see this happening in the book of Ephesians, when God took these slaves, draw them through, drew them through the Red Sea, placed them on the dry banks, it would be a mockery of his power and his work if they started pumping their chest on the other side and say, look how we walked through that dry sea. Look how we broke down the bondage of our slavery. He, he had to send plagues. He had to harden a heart. He had to literally take water and press it up against the banks to where they could walk through it. The truth of the gospel is the beauty of the gospel. While we were still sinners, not within us, but outside of us, coming into us, that's what saves us. Friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you need to recognize that when you hear the word gospel or salvation or belief in Jesus Christ, what that I hope means at its root is that you and I have an issue or a problem within our lives. We all admit that. It's a, it's a troubling world in which we live, and us at our root, we are, we are not good. And we need to realize that the, the problem is actually not out there, but actually in our hearts to the point where the solution cannot come from logically, practically, spiritually, biblically. The solution cannot come from inside of our hearts because that's where the problem is. Imagine good food coming from a spoiled basement. It's not going to be good food. It's a spoiled basement. But rather, the solution actually has to come outside of us. We have to be saved from the outside of us, having God actually change our inside completely. Now, it's a glorious thing that when we're tempted to be haughty, prideful, or self-centered, all we have to do is remind ourselves of the gospel. Anytime I'm in pride, I praise God for a wife, who ask me if I'm sovereign over all the things in my life? I go, no. Or friends who will remind me that I'm acting self-centered and will talk to me through gospel language. Are we saved? How were we saved? Who saved us? Why did he save us? Knowing that the root of all of this comes out from God in his desire to save us, to the point of sending his own son to a death on a cross to substitute himself for us so that he can make us and remake us into the likeness of our son to where we call out in faith and repentance to him? Is that by us? Realizing all that God has done for us is a humbling thing. He did it. We all naturally want to claim some sense of victory in every part of our lives but it ought to be humbling, especially if God is the one who's saving you. But it ought to be so encouraging as well. This humility springs forth a sense of thankfulness and adoration. Friend, he he did it for you. The second person of the Trinity actually accomplished saving you to himself. The second person of the Trinity isn't a desperate king. He's not crawling across a table, just begging you to come to himself. And if only you were wise or smart enough to come to him, if you would just succumb to this begging king, then you could have new life. He doesn't operate like a co-pilot where you're driving into despair and he's like, you know, if you actually went the other way. No, it's not how he's acting. He's not your co-pilot. He's not been waiting for you to give him a chance. He saved you. He summoned you. He knew you from before the foundation of the world. He's there. He's been there. He's the one who's calling you home. He's the one who's been preparing for you a home, a home that he's built, a home that will stand the battering of war, a home that will welcome you, a sinner, to his open arms. Hopefully you see how this freedom that God has made us alive in should never cause pride, but kill pride. We didn't earn this, nor did we work it out. We didn't lift up the waters of the Red Sea. We didn't harden Pharaoh's heart. We didn't send the plagues. We were rescued. One of my favorite movies is talking about one of the Coast Guard people who they just fly over in a helicopter and they just scoop up people from drowning. It's just an amazing emotional state of seeing someone in complete despair. Like, they're going to drown. Like, the ocean is cold near Alaska. Uh, when, when I lived in Alaska in the summer of 2008, we went kayaking in the ocean, which I did not want to go to, but all the other interns wanted to, so I went, and they give you a briefing before you go out there. They say, if you fall in the water, you have five minutes before you can no longer move your arms or legs. And then you bob there for another five minutes before you die. The reality of God rescuing us is not from us just bobbing around, screaming and hoping hoping that he would come. The reality, what the gospel shows, is that God goes to the bottom of the water where we are dead in our sins at the bottom of the ocean floor and draws us to himself, breathes new life into us to where we can live fully. In no way does this cause pride, but if anything, it causes humility at God's gracious work. The second thing, that biblical election does is it directs our worship. The second thing that biblical election does is it directs our worship. Look at verse 12 of Ephesians 1. Verse 11 begins, and God, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, or in him we have obtained an inheritance, which is an action and its purpose statement. Of, the purpose statement of verse 11 is actually verse 12. So we have an action and then a purpose in verse 12. That's how to read it. The purpose is in verse 12 says, we have obtained an inheritance so that... We who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Paul tells you the divine purpose for believers being predestined to receive an inheritance, a new life. And that's you, Christian, would praise God's glory. That's why he saved you to himself. Now, think on this God's glory is the revelation and manifestation of who he is, God's glory is an understanding of his essence, his power his majesty, his purity, and his holiness. So to praise God for his glory is to declare that he is the one true faithful God who regenerates you. And at its base, the doctrine of unconditional election is a rebuke of our natural worship instincts. We are prone to enter into this hall and think of our emotions, our desires, our lives. And that is the travesty of what is known as the seeker-sensitive movement of the 80s and 90s, though it wasn't the first time it's ever come onto the scene. It's the failing of the modern self-esteem movement in churches where the church is portrayed as a solution to your therapeutic needs. But we gather, when we gather, it is our time to be better spent, or is, it, is, is our time better spent on anything else than God? Not ourselves, not what we could be, but on God. Now, this afternoon, one of our church members is performing a violin concert uh, at the Enid Symphony downtown, and you can imagine the disrespect you would show if you went right up to her 30 seconds before the performance and told her that you were, you're were you excited, like, it's nice to be here, it's an amazing hall, oh, look, your violin looks expensive, but you can't, you can't wait to talk about your, your favorite TV show that you watched on Netflix last night, I know that you're about to perform, but look what I saw on Gilmore Girls last night. It was so funny. It was so hilarious. Like, I know you're busy, but like, can you believe what I saw? Or it would be amazing during intermission to go up to her and say, hey, great work. But what are your thoughts on Dallas playing San Francisco later this afternoon? Can you believe that's going to happen? It's like the 90s are back. This is it. Or after the performance. A world-class performance right here in Enon, Oklahoma. You're very special, but I bet if I had a violin like yours, I'd probably play play it great too. After all, it's the effort that counts. And we do that all the time. Sunday morning, emotionally during the service, right after church. The doctrine of election emphasizes the direction from which love comes, it comes from God, and His election shows where our worship should be toward God, not ourselves. A biblical and proper view of His initiating grace leads to a greater sense of awe and reverence in our worship. We should recognize the, and pinpoint the greatness and power of God. It, 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 if done, what said was done, then I would never think about myself in worship. Can you imagine a Hail Mary at the end of a game and a fan coming right up to that quarterback or right up to that receiver and saying, but I clapped when the ball was in the air? A biblical and proper view of his initiating grace leads to a greater sense of gratitude and thankfulness in worship. His choice, his particular mercy being undeserved, but thank God, should be the regular sound of our replies. Out of thankfulness for his initiating grace, we worship him alone. In a biblical and proper view of His initiating grace also stretches within our stresses within our worship the importance of hearing from and heeding to the Bible's instruction. It's in the Word, not in our flesh, that we see that it was God who did this for us before all time to save us in time, in order to preserve us for all time. His Spirit-inspired words lead to a deeper understanding of His nature, His attributes, His providence, His work to where we can have confidence that the one who says that he knew us before all time and will bring us to completion in the end is actually the one who can actually do that. Biblically proper view of his initiating grace emphasizes the importance of righteous works, leading to a sense of of desire to serve and to please God rather than oneself. It is, it is common to hear from naysayers about unconditional election that that, that teaching would basically make me lazy. If God's going to do all the work, then I don't have to do anything. I can be lazy. But in the right way, those who were placed on the other side of the Red Sea, imagine what they would want to do for the, ones who, for the one who just saved them from their slavery it should lead to a more selfless and God-centered worship experience. Hopefully, we do this within our time together. And if we aren't doing this, then please come to an elder and help us understand how we're in heir of doing this. But overall, a proper and biblical view of God's initiating saving grace should lead to a more reverent, grateful, biblically-centered, and selfless worship experience for Christians to the point where when we go home from worshiping God together, the first question that we shouldn't ask of ourselves is how did that make you feel this morning rather than tell me what you basked in today? Third thing biblical election does, it directs our worship, it kills our pride, but it also increases our love. The frozen chosen, as they are accused, unloving angry chosen people. It is not. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, used to argue that he could not accept the doctrine of election because it undermined man's pursuit of holiness and love. Because he thought it undermined man's pursuit of holiness and love because in grace, he would say, there's no longer any fear of punishment or hope of reward. If we have grace, then we would not be stirred on to holiness and love, because we no longer have a fear of punishment or hope of reward. But what Paul and other apostles argue is that if there is a fear of punishment, if there is a hope of reward, then there is not grace by which you have been delivered at all. Our love of others, our love of God, our pursuit of holiness is because we were delivered from the deadness of our sins. It is because we are no longer on the floor of the Red Sea. It is because we are standing on Jordan's banks with a new life. Paul says himself in Romans chapter 8, verse 15, you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. You see a good father and you see a happy son you see a fearful and scared little boy, you can also see an angry father who would not cry out to him, Abba, Father. In other words, fear is what you had before you were a Christian, and love is what you had have because you were a Christian. You aimed at earning before Christ. You aimed at working towards righteousness before Christ. You aimed at choosing life, not knowing and seeing that you were in bondage before Christ. But in Christ, you were actually set free from the work of righteousness and given the actual life of righteous pursuit. Election doesn't make someone lazy, but actually active in their faith. We are saved not into a dead spirit, but we are saved from a dead spirit. God's sovereign work in us emphasizes the joy in good works because good works are not in vain. One thing that, one of the things that I love, and I mean this, is is hearing testimonies of incoming church members. So, if you're unfamiliar, when someone wants to become a member of our church, they go through a membership class, and then they're interviewed by an elder, and the elder will ask them about who they are, and, you know, you know, do you have kids? Are you married? Do you have a job? Or, you know, what just trying to get to know you, the, the Facebook uh, particulars. But then we also ask them, you know, can they articulate the gospel? What is the gospel in like a minute or less? And, and we help them out if they have a misunderstanding of what the gospel is. But then we also ask them, how did they come to a saving belief in Jesus Christ? And I love hearing these things. And in reality, I love hearing it, these things because at their core, all these testimonies that come to them, at their core, all these testimonies are exactly the same. Some might have more color than others. Some might be a a little less emphatic than others. But they're all sinners. And then God saved them, forgave them, remade them, freed them. And when Christians recognize that they're all all part of God's plan for the extension of His joy through their lives, this causes their love towards one another as actually being increased. None of you are like any of you. You might have tendencies that are like your mom. You might like the same sport as your friend, but you are, you are unlike anyone around you. Think about that. When some of you run away as fast as you can after the service or some of you linger, none of you are like each other, but all of you have the same union, not in yourselves, but in Christ. And this allows us to come together on, on the same floor, where we can love each other in an increased way because at our, at our new, newly made root, we've all been loved. When believers remember the grace that God has given us in Christ, this supernaturally leads. This supernaturally leads to a greater sense of forgiveness of others and acceptance of others because we remember that We've all been saved by grace. Therefore, we know that we should extend that grace to others. You you might hear of people not wanting to go to this church or that church or another church down the road because if they really knew me, they wouldn't welcome me in their doors. And you want to look at them and say, I think you will find a lot of people who are just like you. And they say, no, no, no. I've done some really bad things. And you go, have you committed cosmic treason against the God of the universe? Because that's what we've all done. Yet God in His grace has forgiven us of our sins. So welcome, brother, a seat is for you. When Christians remember that under no condition of our own, we were saved by God except because of our need of grace, His Spirit then leads us to a greater desire to care for one another. If choice was how you got into the kingdom, then you would be right to exclude other people based on their choice. Their choice wouldn't be the same as yours. Their choice wouldn't be as intense or less intense than yours. You would actually want to have a bunch of people who claim to be Christians who are actually just like you, based on their choice or your choice. But in reality, what the Scripture says is it wasn't done by you, but all for you on the cross. So, a biblical understanding of unconditional election must lead us to a more loving, forgiving, caring, and united community among believers. If at any point there is division or frustration or anger within the church, not that that's ever happened, I think at our root we can take ourselves to the reality, who are we in our flesh? What has God done for us? Okay, now we have an understanding of at least a conversation can begin on maybe how I've hurt you or you've hurt me. But if we come on on God's terms, not on the devil's terms, then we could start working towards reconciliation. Biblical understanding of election leads us to be more loving, forgiving, and caring. An unbiblical view of election actually does create divisions within the body of Christ. And election is one of those doctrines that entirely reorients our motives at its deepest level. This is, this is, partially why I wanted to talk about this and deciding several months ago that I would because it it reorients our motives at their deepest level. Look again at verse 11 of Ephesians chapter one. The idea is that we have obtained an inheritance and the explanation is the next phrase, having been predestined. We have obtained an inheritance having been predestined. And again, the rhetorical question is, how did you, friend, do that? You didn't. The comfort to believers is that while we were still sinners, while we were God's enemies, God has delighted to love a people for himself despite their inability. That salvation is God's initiative is nothing but good news. This is not a reckless or ill-conceived plan, but was done according to his purpose, his counsel, and his will. You think about what was shown in the book of Job to a frustrated man who wanted to know why everything was happening the way it was. And and, and in many ways, the onus was then placed on him to, how much of the world do you want to be under your control? He He wanted to know everything. He wanted things to be understood by his control or his understanding of how things ought to work. So God, in many ways, pulled back the curtain, just a glimpse of all that is happening in the unfolding providence of God. And what happened to Job? He screamed out loud. He said, woe is me. Shut the curtain. I can't handle all that is happening. Friend, at what level do you want you to truly be in charge? Salvation as God's initiative is nothing but good news. It was not a reckless, ill-conceived plan, but was done according to His purpose, His counsel, His will. And it was a carefully considered plan carried out by His sovereign control of the universe. Now, fourth and finally, Biblical election intensifies our evangelism. An understanding of what the Bible portrays as unconditional election actually. Intensifies, doesn't dampen, it intensifies our evangelism. Quite possibly the biggest objection to biblical instruction on the doctrine of election is the logical fallacy people blurt out when it comes to missions. Well, they say if you think God has chosen people from before the foundation of the world, and by the way, we don't say that, the Bible says that, then what's the point of even sharing the gospel? If God's done everything, then why share the gospel? If he's going to save them, then why would I ever evangelize? It's actually a very good question, a very logical question. I want you to turn your attention and your pages to the book of Romans chapter 10. The book of Romans chapter 10. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, go left two major books. Romans chapter 10. The word Romans will be at the top of the page if you're unfamiliar with the Bible. The chapter is the big number 10 hopefully in the middle of the page, and then go to the little numbers, which are verses, so chapters and then verses. Verse, start start in verse 13, and I'll read those verses to you. Romans chapter 10, verse 13, and I'll read through verse 17. For with the heart, one believes and is justified, and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. So that's how people are saved. They believe in their heart, they confess with their mouth. But it goes on. Four, the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew or Gentile. There's no distinction between Jew or Gentile. The Scripture says, "Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved." Now I want you to go over to Romans chapter fourteen. Actually, where am I trying to go? Gent, help me out here. Romans chapter thirteen, verse ten, right? 10:14. thank you, someone. Uh, last night when I was looking over my uh, passage for today, I kept putting in Second Corinthians, and I was like, Second Corinthians, where am I? Romans chapter 10:14. How then, someone is saved? Everyone is equal in the eyes of the Lord. How will they save? How will they be calling out to the Lord with their mouth? How will they believe in their heart? Look at Romans chapter 10 verse 14. We made it. How then will they call on him who they have not believed? Comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Now, to take this back, it is an argument against the doctrine of unconditional election that if God has accomplished everything and he will accomplish everything, then why would I ever go evangelize or tell someone that they are in sin and need of a savior? I think it's helpful to think about this that I, in particular, really love food. I like food. I like to eat it. I don't like to eat too much of it. I don't like to eat too little of it. I like food. But sometimes it takes means for me to get food. Sometimes it takes money to get food. I gotta pay for food. Sometimes it takes travel. I've gotta go get food for myself. Or sometimes it takes time for food. Maybe I wait for the eggs to fry properly. How do I eat? I love food. How do I eat? There are means by which I can receive food. So if God elects people before the foundation of the world and the Spirit regenerates their hearts, then what's the point of evangelism? Ask yourself, What are the means by it happening? What are the means by which people are saved? Look again at Paul's apostolic demand in chapter 10, verse 14. Verse 14 says that a person calls out to God. How does a person call out to God? Look again at verse 14. That person who calls out to God hears of God. How does someone hear of God? Verse 14, a person hears the word by someone preaching the word to that person. How does someone preach the word to that person? Verse 15, someone is sent to preach the good news. How is someone sent to preach the good news? Look at verse 16, the inverse of the verse. The one who was sent obeys God to go and speak. How all this process is summed up is verse 17. Someone's faith comes through their hearing. What is that hearing? Through the words of whom, who is that whom? That is Christ who speaks the word. Faith comes by hearing, hearing of the words of Christ. What is the point of evangelism? Putting the word in front of that person. God has chosen how you and I are to be obedient Christian in our faith by calling others to repentance, by going to them and sharing the gospel. What is the point of evangelism if God unconditionally elects people, if God regenerates people's hearts, if God converts people from their sins to new life, if God promises to bring people home? What is the point of evangelism? I don't know. How much do you want to disobey God? I don't know. How much do you hate someone to not tell them the gospel? God has chosen the means by which people are saved. Friends, it might be by you going to your child and saying, I must tell you what you have inherited from me. It may be going to a friend and saying, I must tell you what is the most unique thing about my life. It may be going to the random barista at a coffee shop and say, thank you, this coffee is amazing. I I know that we're not talking about this, but let me please talk about this. God has chosen the means by which people come to him. And friend, in your regeneration, you are a part of it, if you're willing to obey. The question concerning election is not, what is the point of sharing the gospel if God has already elected people? The real question is, Christian, how disobedient do you want to be? Sharing the gospel is our participating in God's plan of bringing people to himself putting the word in front of people, speaking the word to people. Evangelism, while it is the biggest misunderstanding about the doctrine of unconditional election, biblical election actually changes everything concerning evangelism in missions. Biblical understanding of election actually changes our evangelism on three levels. It allows us to understand what is the message that we were to portray to people. That message is the gospel, it tells us what is the method of sharing God's grace to people. That method is by telling them the gospel, not a set of tricks or pop psychology, but the gospel, and it gives us the motivation. The motivation is that is how people will hear of the gospel, is by people evangelizing the gospel. The greatest missionary in church history wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. It was not an issue with Paul. He endures everything for the sake of the elect. He went to everyone, knowing that God's particular love would fall on those whom God particularly saved. He says that they, too, may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So, election certainly did not dampen this missionary's zeal. And so, Friend, you are wrong and you are offensive to God's word if you think His choice means that you should do nothing. The apostle pushed tirelessly from city to city, motivated by God's message to him. God came to Paul in a vision in Acts chapter 18 when Paul was ready to move on. It was customary for Paul to go from city to city, he would evangelize, he would preach. He would teach the doctrines of the Old Testament scriptures to the point where he was about to die. And then when he was about to die by stoning or people killing him, he would then move to another city. But God gave him a vision in Acts chapter 18, verse 10, where God appeared to him in his slumber and said, don't leave this city. I have many people in this city, it says. I have many people in this city. The teaching there is God has appointed in time and space all of which His people would come to Himself, and it's through the preaching of the Word. God's initiating grace actually intensifies our evangelism every step. Now, in conclusion, this this doctrine affects us in many other positive ways, but the most significant reason that we are to believe something is not how it affects us, but whether it is, in fact, biblical truth. One evangelist writes, the doctrine of election is the product of divine revelation, not human speculation. It was not invented by Calvin. It was not invented by Augustine. It was not invented by Paul. It is, above all else, biblical truth. And so, the reason why I think this is important, this isn't the gospel. So, if you disagree with this, this doesn't mean you're out of God's grace. But the reason why this understanding doctrines like this is so Formidable and important is because it forms a background to so much of what the Bible teaches. While only in a few places is election argued or defended, normally it actually, it's an underlying premise throughout all of Scripture. God took Adam and placed him in a garden. God took the Egyptians and placed them in freedom. God took you in your sin and placed you in new life. Don't strike the hand that fed you. It upholds redemptive history. It upholds the story of God's overwhelming sovereign love. Without it, it's impossible to clearly understand. And again and again, we read, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose for his inheritance, Psalm 33, or all who were appointed for eternal life believed Acts 13, or in our text, in him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who worked all things according to the counsel of his will. It is not a read and weep. It is a rejoice and live. Now to finish, finally, not only are we told to make our calling and election sure, in 2 Peter, we're also told how to do it. We're told how to understand what it means to be elect. First Thessalonians chapter one, Paul wrote, "For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you." Then he tells us why he knew he was chosen. It says, "Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. You became imitators," it says, "of us, of the Lord." Christ said. Also, in the Gospels, my sheep, listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. It says this in John chapter 10. In Romans chapter 8, it says, those whom he predestined, he called. And so, so friend, the, the question for you is, has God called you to believe in him, no longer believing in yourself? Has God called you to put off the flesh that you naturally have and to put on the righteousness of God? Friend, have you heard God's voice to join the fold of His unveiling glory and grace? Has the gospel come to you not only in word but in power by the Holy Spirit? In other words, do you trust, will you trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins? He places the offering out for you and calls you to come to Himself. Has He given you faith to trust in His Son? And if He has, go to the one who gives it to you. If you haven't made your calling or election sure, respond to the invitation of Christ in His Word where He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Then you too will have made your calling and election sure. Friends, this truth from Scripture truly changes everything, if anything, the direction of our joy. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank You that it is You who we come to for truth and understanding, for love and acceptance, for life and in our last, everlasting joy. We pray that we would be marked by people who have been sought and bought by you, that we would be a church who recognizes the redemption that you have given us in your Son. Oh Lord, we pray that you would change us continually into the likeness of him so that when we see him, we will know him because we are looking at him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.